Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people who inspire me about sport, business and the winning mindset. Today's Boothcast is brought to you by Booth Training. I try and help each and every paddler out there get better at what they're doing and become the best version of themselves. Today, I'm lucky to have one of the greats of Ironman racing through the 80s and 90s, Guy Leach. He won multiple Gullengatta gold titles. He was an Australian Ironman champion. And what he's been able to do after sport and being able to do business and actually create stuff from his brand has been something that's really inspired me. Guy's been someone I've been able to ring up and ask for advice. And his advice for me has been instrumental in what I've been able to do. So it's nice to be able to get him on the line and have a chat and share his stories with all of you. So Guy, thanks for coming on. Nice intro, Berthy. Appreciate it. No worries. So, mate. Didn't, didn't, I, I, meant, didn't know I meant I, so much to you. Yeah, well, it's good. It's always been good for me. Like whenever I've had an idea, um, I've been able to ring you up and, and sort of be able to ask your ideas. And I see like through the things that you've learned over time, being able to mm. put that and implement that into what I'm doing. So it's been, uh, it's been really, really cool to have someone of your stature to be able to ring up and ask for advice whenever I feel like it. You've always been very generous with your time with me. So I really appreciate it. Mate, happy to do it. And I find it fun when someone can uh, take sport and turn it into a job and uh, do something they love. So, mate, you're living the dream, which is good. good. Yeah, so trying to keep keep the dream alive each and every day. And I think you've been able to do yeah. that in your life as well. And with, with sort of going back, we're going to start with your background and how you sort of got involved in sport and um, how you, the, all the different things that led from that. Um, where, were you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And how did you get involved in sport? Yeah, so my, my um, upbringing was, I was literally born in Victoria. So I was... Um, I was a Melbourne boy that really can't remember much about it because I was out of there by the time I was sort of five years old and started school uh, on the northern beaches of, um, of Sydney. So my parents split up when, uh, when I was that age, moved to Sydney with my brother, with my mum, and, um, and I sort of started swimming from the age of eight when I, uh, which is a, probably a common story where I'd get colds and it'd, it'd get go on the chest. I'd get bronchitis and my mum took me to the doctor. The doctor said, listen, let's get him into, into some swimming, strengthen his lungs and, and that's how I started. But um, my dad's background was, was AFL. So he, he did a, uh, a stint with St Kilda when he left school and played, um, played AFL. But um, back in those days, it wasn't professional like it is, you know, now. And... Um, and he got a job and the like. So, you know, so yeah, my background uh, in the water was probably different to what it would have been if I stayed in Melbourne. Um, uh, and I followed St Kilda for a long time because we lived not far from there when, uh, when I was born and, and used to go and visit dad and on school holidays down in Melbourne. So we'd go and watch uh, St Kilda play and practice and those sort of things. But, um, but the water was the thing that sort of grabbed me when I was a bit older and, and I went down that route. So when, when you moved to the Northern Beaches or into Sydney, um, whereabouts did you, did you move to? And like what sort of, I know you were a swimmer to start with. So where, where did you swim and um, how did you sort of get involved in surf lifesaving as the next step? Yeah, so I was, um, I literally was uh, like, like someone, someone who's a pool swimmer. Excuse the dog, dogs in the yeah. background. <laughs> he's, he's angry, mate. He's what are you done to him? Well, mate, they're just, they're self-isolating, mate. They got the shits. But, um, they're not used to you being around every day. Oh, mate, they're, uh, they're, they're talking. One of them's talking. Two dogs. But, um, yeah, mate, I, I literally, um, 
I didn't join a circus. I was unusual for an Ironman. So I don't really know out of the top guys, I don't know anyone that had this background. So I was a swimmer. My goal was to, to go to the Olympic Games or represent Australia in the pool. And that was the thing I did right through my school time. Went to the, uh, the trial, Olympic trials when I was 16. Too young. Like it, um, I, I, it wasn't at the time when I was physically at my best. I was still growing. Um, and so it came off the back of that. And there's, you know, obviously another four years to go with trying to make another team. And, and, and I um, had a little stint with um, marathon swimming. Won the Australian titles, beat the guy that was ranked number one in the world at the time. Um, and all these opportunities opened up in, in marathon swimming. That was back in the 80s when it wasn't an Olympic sport like it is now. Um, but I had these ideas of um, swim, swimming the English Channel and doing a bunch of things like that. And even then, I still hadn't, um, I literally hadn't joined a surf club. So I, I, I never had a background in the surf at all. So I came from the pool and my coach uh, was, you know, basically his belief was that if you went in the surf and did surf swimming, it would ruin your technique, ruin your stroke. And if you wanted to be a proper swimmer, you didn't do that. So, um, so I didn't join the surf club. And, um, and it, wasn't until, it wasn't until I literally hit the end of being 16 years of age, nearly 17, that I was sitting at home and I was watching the TV. And back in, that day, in those days, Grant Kenny was the, the guy that, propelled Ironman into being, uh, you know, like a high-profile sport through that television commercial and and the the sign-up with Kellogg's Nutrigrain. He was the start of all that. Um, I saw that first TV commercial that he did um, showing him running through the, running along the beach, set up crowd, big crowd, busting his way out through the surf on the ski and the board and the whole thing during that TV commercial. Literally just gobsmacked me took took me from being wanting to stay in the pool to wanting to go and do what he did. And I remember saying to my mum at the time um, on the lounge, I'm doing that. I'm going I'm to be good at that thing. And I literally joined the surf club straight after. So I didn't, I, I was a real late starter. I had, I, I was playing catch up from the start. And, you know, the irony is that the thing I'm most famous for in surf lifesaving is winning the first ever cooling out of gold. Um, and, and, you know, being the first ever professional Ironman race. And that was the, the, the catalyst to being, um, to setting off Ironman to be a professional sport and to sort of step out of being a surf club event into being a fully fledged event all on its own. And we all know what happened in the 80s and 90s and how big that got. Well, you know, I, I literally joined the surf club um, two years prior to that race occurring and winning and I'd never body surfed before I'd never sat on a board before I'd never sat on a ski and I'd never swum in the surf so it was um yeah my my background into surf lifesaving is not like yours or Trevor Hendy's or the Mercers or Rido or any of the other guys the Eckstein's I have no background whatsoever so I had to I had to just to work it out really really quickly and particularly when I went and won that first cooling get a goal and went from being not known to being the guy that was the the you know ranked number one in the world in in endurance Ironman, something that never never been around before. 
it was like I was trying to protect the mountain, but trying to learn all the skills in the meantime because I didn't have them. Yeah. I was literally, you know, just just gorging myself on trying to learn quick because deep down I knew I didn't have the skills of the other guys because I had no background. Um, but I was just determined to make sure I stayed at the top. Yeah. So I want it back a little bit. So you're born in 64. You've, you've moved from Melbourne when you were five into Sydney. So we're looking at like late 60s. You've, you've started your sort of swimming career in Sydney. You've, you've swum basically up to you're about 16, would you say? Yeah. So I, I, literally, then, I literally kept swimming just as I started. I, I became 17. I just got to 17 and then saw the TV commercial with Grant and it just, it just flipped what I wanted to do. Um, and, and the other thing was I'd sort of, I hadn't lost interest in swimming in the pool, but it was a long way to the next Olympic Games. Another four sure. years. I'd represented Australia um, that, that year anyway, overseas in a swimming team. And what events was that? Was that just the marathon swimming or was that like other no, events? No, that, well? that was uh, 400 individual medley, 100 and 200 breaststroke. So okay. I was actually good at breaststroke and backstroke and not um, freestyle was probably my third best stroke, but I, I was strong across all four. Um, and that was like a junior Dolphins team, would you say? When you represented no, that was an open. Yeah. It was an open, open team that went away to the Oceania Games in Fiji. Okay, um, representing Australia, and it was on a non-Commonwealth game, non-Olympic year. So okay. I, I, I made the team. And what year um, was that? Uh, well, I was seventeen, so so seventy-nine. Yeah, oh. so it was just short of the eighties, and um, no, eighty-one. 81. Not, 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 not to, it was literally right around when I decided off the back of that to go and start Ironman. So, yeah. So I hit sort of my peak at that time. How much further could I have gone in the pool? I don't know. I, I, I was a late mature physically. So I wasn't that big, strong guy at the age of 17. I was still growing into myself. Um, I still think I had more improvement there, but, but Ironman captured the imagination of what I wanted to do. And, you know, and the thing was that, it it wasn't a it wasn't a legitimate sport that was a job at the time. Um, you know, Grant Kenny became famous for winning the senior and the junior Ironman title. Um, you know, in 1980, but you know he was the only one that was you know bringing an income through from it. But I just I just loved the idea of what the Ironman sport did, but battling out through the surf and being in the ocean, it just it, it just got me. And so, you know, so because of that, I just followed, followed the love of what I wanted to do. Mm. And so Grant was winning events in the early 80s, which is basically what sort of drove you, saw him on television. You wanted to be a part of that sport. You wanted to be sort of match, matching it up with him. You, I remember mm. the first Cool and Gutter Gold was like the first professional Cool and Gutter Gold was in 89, but you'd won two prior to that as well. What years were they? It's hard to define what, what is... You know, that was the first ever Uncle Toby's Ironman race, which was that yeah. split from life-saving, which caused so much drama. But, but you know, like, I won $20,000 worth of gold um, bullion in um, 84 off the back of that race that um, that was, you know, put together because of the movie. Uh, yeah, and, okay. Yeah, so it was all based around a movie. So the movie was there. It was... Um, the The race was just invented because people just didn't want to well the movie makers just didn't want to be in a position where they had just a surf club event 
culminating in the storyline of the movie. So because of that, they had to come up with this thing that was just ridiculous. And, and, and what they came up with was a 46 kilometer race that was, you know, 25 times longer than, a, than an Ironman race at a surf carnival. And, you know, that was the start. So that was, you know, I, picked, I took $20,000 $20, worth of gold and I took that and actually um, um, that was the first ever prize that was on offer in a surf life-saving event of, of a monetary type that I know of. So that so, was your first professional race. Yeah, so that was yeah. 84 when you sort of had that opportunity to... So the, the basically, I didn't know that. So the, basically, the producers of the movie, The Cool and Gutter Gold, actually I'm, I'm created the concept. It. I'm going to talk, talk and shut a door at the same time, mate, as we go. This is, this is uh, doing two things at once at its best. Mate, you're incredible. Incredible, isn't it? That's why, not, that's why I was a great Iron Man, mate, because I did more than one thing. <laughs> so for, really for those... Great. And for those viewers out there who may, maybe like be internationally and don't don't know what we're talking about with the Cool and Gutter Gold, can you give people a, a, a breakdown of what the event is? Yeah. So look, that 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 initial event. So it, look, in '84, there was there was a few things that were just bizarre with with the whole thing. The first thing was that mate, um, we you literally had a poster turn up at every circle club in Australia around the world, and this poster showed a race that had, was 11 kilometers um, running to start with. You then jumped in the water and you're swimming, um, you're, you were competing from um, Surface Paradise down to Coolangatta and then back all the way up to Surface Paradise. So it was 23 kilometers one way down the coast and then, then, and then going back to the start line. So 46K. So the first leg was 11 kilometer run on the beach. And then you had to then jump in the water with your swimming goggles, on and swim five kilometers further down towards Coolangatta, get out, run another four kilometers along the beach, then jump on your board and paddle five kilometers, get off and run the last 800 meters to the halfway point, which was Coolangatta. Then you had to jump on your surf ski and paddle all the way back along the coastline back to Surface Paradise. Now, the only reason that we were doing that was because the movie makers wanted to film us um, doing the real race. And whilst we were doing that, they had this elaborate stand set up for the crowd at the start line, which had, which took five, seven, 10,000 people on it. And then there was all these other people there and they had the actors in Grant Kenny who was playing himself in the movie going about um, just reenacting the finish line, the finish of the race, yeah. which was just pretend, right? Yeah, so on the cue of the directors, everyone, the crowds would go, woo! like this and scream and Grant would run with these two two actors into the finish line while we're out there doing the real thing. Now, when I was doing the race, I counted 21 helicopters filming in the air whilst I was paddling back from Coolangatta to Service Paradise during the event. Yeah, It was just like, you, you, to this day, there's been no event in ocean paddling events mm. that would have the attention that this thing had based on the massive machine of this movie that produced this outcome. And so 21 helicopters in the air, 25,000 people at the finish when I went, I got to the line at the end of four and a half hours. There were 250,000 people they worked out along the coastline at every beach when you added it up watching this event. There was never a time when I got out of the water, which I didn't see five, 10,000 people. It was just, it was just ridiculous. And so you know, the, the heights of the Ironman sport beyond that day 
were fantastic, but they never ever reached the pinnacle of what that felt like on that day. Um, yeah, I, I can imagine it was such a. Yeah, I can imagine it was like such a surreal feeling. Like you've sort of trained your whole life in the pool by yourself. You're solo. You're going to different events. You have got a bit of a crowd at the pools, but not really. Like and everyone's sort of there generally for themselves. But when you've got this massive crowd for this movie that because of this the noise and the scene that all those helicopters and the stand would have created around the event and you got you're going back to the time where you probably still had black and white televisions and only like three or four stations on the tv so you're not really competing with this global cloud system that we've got today and you, oh. you, you and then you've just got all these people just going what the hell is going on let's go down the beach let's go check it out and you probably never probably that was probably the pinnacle of the sport based around just the amount of noise that was created and probably the success that the sport had through the eighties and nineties from there was probably the, like the 250,000 people that you're talking about who were on the beach that day, suddenly interested in what was surf lifesaving. Hmm. Like I'll give you an example, right? So in 1984, sports science wasn't a terminology. It wasn't something that anyone ever spoke about. It, yeah. didn't, it wasn't an existing term that you actually used at that time mate, yeah. Reebok running shoes hadn't launched in Australia mate there was no such thing as um, Gatorade back then electrolyte drink it, it hadn't been invented um, you make carbo loading for a race was eating pies and cakes leading in there was no science behind what you were doing and the other thing you got to think about is this right for the athletes out there listening when you're trying to be the best of what you wanted to be Mate, you look at other people and other events that are similar and you take the good out of that and you take the common traits that make someone a champion and you copy, you duplicate. It's what, we, what you do as, a, as an athlete to improve, right? This race never existed before. A 15-minute Ironman race at a surf carnival was the only thing that you could really identify with with a four-and-a-half-hour race that I did to win this thing. So you just, you, you couldn't ring up a bloke and go, listen, when you did that race last year, what did it feel like here? Or what was, what happened there? Mate, there's nothing. There was yeah. nothing to go off. So it was really, really weird times. And for me, that day just didn't represent me winning a race. Um, it represented me having left school and now having the opportunity to have something I love doing being my job. Because races popped up off the back of that. The Kellogg's Nutrigrain series launched the following year off the, the cooling at a goal. I walked down the beach that morning of the race, 40 to 1 odds to win it, youngest in the field of 100, people, 100 guys. And I walked off the beach after the race where every person along that coastline knew my name. And then off the back of that, the next morning when I woke up with a hangover, having celebrated winning the thing, I woke up and I was on the front page of every paper in Australia I was the lead on every channel, on channel seven, nine and 10, the only stations and two that were around then. I was yeah. the lead story on the television and on radio. So my world changed on that day like, like nothing else. I walked on the beach unknown. I walked off a household name. I walked on not knowing what I was gonna do for the next 15, 20 years of my life. And I walked off the beach, basically that was my job for the next 15 years. Yeah, and so it's pretty it was, cool. It was it's... as bizarre as it gets. It's so cool to hear like that story, like how quickly things could change. Like you went from being sort of semi-disillusioned with swimming to looking at Grant Kenny and going, I want to be that guy. 
And then you've basically gone, turned up to this race, you've won it and you've become a household name overnight. And then your whole community, your exposure, everything around who Guy Leach was has just changed because all of a sudden you are a household name. I'm interested to know when you were trying to train for this, like obviously when you were swimming, you had like the swimming skills, but you hadn't been in the ocean. You hadn't sat on a ski. You hadn't done the prone paddling. How did you, like, did you have a coach that you went to, to, to learn these skills? Did you do it yourself? Like what was the process? Cause it wouldn't have just happened straight away. Uh, I, I always, I mean, through your swimming career, you, you get some unbelievable coaches that you can, you come across that are very wise. And I got, I got lucky <clears throat> around the Northern beaches where I swam in the same squad as Craig Riddington and, and um, a few other guys that were big in surf. And we, the coach at the time was the head coach for the Australian Olympic swim team. So highly, highly knowledgeable was a guy that would go and search out in the States, the latest coaching techniques and mental tips and periodization and how to taper properly. So from the age of sort of 12 to 17 in that pool, I learned a lot about high performance and I learned a lot about how to get yourself ready to, to win races in, in that swimming uh, environment. So what I did was I literally took the, the lessons and the, the types of training you did in the pool and I tried to mirror that as much as I could into the other disciplines. Um, and I didn't know anything else other than that. Um, we had guys in our squad that were ski paddlers that were going for the Olympic Games in kayaking. So you learnt, you learnt from them as well. Um, and, you know, it, because it was such early days, I, I think that back in, in our day, it was a lot of the, the focus was on mileage and on workload. Um, probably not as much on technique and, um, and, and the science and the, and the science behind the rest of it. Yeah, um, that's, a common, that's a pretty common theme. Sorry, I just cut you off there. But I remember speaking to Jimmy and speaking to Oscar and all these guys, yeah. like more was always more. That's, that's, that was just the, the theory behind everything. You train more, you got better. Yeah, and look, to a degree you did. And, and, and in the Ironman sport with what occurred, which was uh, endurance racing, endurance series, and cooling out of golds and those type, those type of races, there was a certain amount of workload that you had to do that if you didn't do that, you couldn't win. Right, that's the first. The second thing is that, you know, technique was obviously important and skills are obviously very important. But because it was a new sport that everyone was learning about, the, the advantage, not the advantage, but the, the lucky part I had was that distance part of it and getting good at being able to do long distance. Everyone was learning that at the same time. Um, and, and, and I was lucky that I had a natural ability at endurance. So I had that up my sleeve with all those swimming miles up in the, in, in the system before this whole thing started. But, but I just, um, I think that I wanted it that bad. And I was put in this unusual position where if you win the first race, the first ever distance Ironman race, and you are at the top, you know, you could either say, oh, I got a bit lucky and I won that race and mate, whatever else happens, it doesn't really matter because I won the first. And no one can take that away from me. Or, which is what I did, I'm like, I'm at the top here. I want to stay there. I'm going to do everything I can to work out how to do it and, and defend, defend the top of the mountain. So for me, it was, 
it was more that attitude. And I'm like, here's a really good opportunity. I don't know where it's going to go, but I love it. And I love the feeling of winning. And I, I, and I just want to keep doing it. And so, I, I, you know, I would go and do the extra stuff and, and the one percenters and all those things that I felt like other people wouldn't do to get myself prepared to win. And, you know, I, you know I'm just really lucky that the coaches I had in my swimming days taught me pretty much the formula of how to, to be the best I could be. And, um, and, I, and I took that with me right through my career from, you know, setting goals, um, how to taper correctly, um, log books, um, you know, having the best training squads, the best coaches around me, all those things that, you know, we, can, we could bang on about for the next two hours. They're all things that were already locked into the system before we started, which is, a, which is an advantage. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so you basically you're 20 years old when you win your first cool and go to gold. You've tried to you're trying to race against guys like Grant Kenny because you want to obviously beat your idols because that's something that I've always wanted to do. Like you're, you're sort of looking at these guys, and you're going, okay, well, how do I beat them? You've mentioned that in your statement. You've looked at successful people and you've tried to sort of emulate that and do that. And you've sort of almost done that at one of your first attempts. So then you go back and you try and defend that same race. How many years after was it? when you defended that race and then you run, you end up winning three yeah. overall. Was it every year? Yeah. Yeah. No. So, so what happened was the, um, off the back of the first one was so successful. Surf Lightsaber said, well, well, we'll do this again the following year. We'll put $20,000 in cash this time on it. Um, they changed the order around. They, they put the, the run leg last, not first. So they, they, they kept the distance in the same, but they swapped it because they, they had water safety issues with guys collapsing off the ski in that last leg in the heat. So you've got to remember, cooling out of golds that run today are shorter than what we used to do. But mainly they're, they're run in September in cooler conditions on the Gold Coast. Remember, we, we were racing in January on the Gold okay. Coast. Yeah. Mate, we were, it was like, you, you, mate, if you're going to suffer and you weren't prepared to, you hadn't prepared yourself for a race like this, Mate, you were caught out really, real early. And the thing was, there was guys that literally, a couple of guys fell unconscious on the ski paddle coming back in that first year. So, and nearly drowned. Guys having said, you know what, if they're going to collapse, let them collapse on the sand um, yeah. in the last leg of the water. So, so it changed the event. But the thing was, I learned oh, from the first okay. year. I wonder why they changed the, the, the course from the ski paddle being last. But that does make sense because... Okay. You wouldn't have had the nutrition and the hydration sort of knowledge that you have now either. So like people probably were jumping on their skis with no water and trying to paddle back. And well, mate, look, people took water, but the problem is, mate, if I go and flog you for four and a half hours in 36 degree heat, mate, it's going to take more of a toll on your body compared to if it's 23 degrees. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, exactly and that, and that's, that's something I really learned doing Molokai. Like I know that, geez, it's so hot and humid over there. And that's some of the similar conditions that you would have. So it's the middle of summer over in, July in Hawaii when you're doing that that sub crossing where you you have the same sort of conditions in January on the Gold Coast. So yeah, I can now, imagine the, the just the physical nature of that whole event. But you got to remember in '84 and '85, mate, you didn't have a, 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 an exercise physiologist or someone that had worked out the the amount of literage you're meant to take over a four and a half hour race at this heart rate, and so you just you were just doing your best. And so, but the the bottom line was that they put a crawling out of gold on those years in the hardest type climate that you could face up in Queensland in January. And so, you know, so, so literally they swapped that around. 
But I went in the following year knowing that I knew, I knew where I lacked in, in, um, in the race the first year. I won the first year by a minute and a half. Um, and I, I, I knew the training I'd done the first year, I knew where I could improve that, where I could make better training. Um, so I went in, into the training for the following year feeling good about knowing the, where the improvements were. And the other thing is, the, the thing I had up my sleeve against the other guys who have been doing Ironman for a long time was, mate, over 12 months, my skills got better. I got better in choppy conditions on the ski. I got better catching waves. Like I had a long way to go, but I, I was improving quick. And because of that, it just meant that I, you know, I, I, was, a, I was a different athlete the second year round. And so the next year I went into it, I, did, I, I never feel like I'm, I'm going to win a race. But based on the training I do and how I, I lead into an event with preparation, I, I just feel very comfortable about what I can do on the day. And, and I, I feel like it should be enough. And so I went into that next year nervous, but deep down going, you know what? I'm better than what I was last year. I think I can win by, by more. And I won by five minutes the second year. Yeah. And how much um, did you win by the first year? A minute and a half. And who was that to? So the first year, there was a guy called Lawrence Reese from the Gold Coast that, um, that, uh, that got second and Rido got third in that, Craig Riddington. And then the, the next year, a runner who'd run a 2.20 marathon, who was a surf lightsaver, and the last run leg was, um, was 11 kilometres on the sand. Yeah. He, he ran from basically 20th into second place behind wow. me. Um, yeah, so he, he locked a 2.21 like marathon run in. So he was, he was, he was like nasty fast, you know, like it's, it's funny in the race. I had spotters along the course and, um, and I literally had to, um, I had these guys telling me every 2k who was behind me and how far and what my gap was on the rest of the field. And I remember coming into about the 5k mark of the 11k race. And one of the boys said to me, and I was, I was literally, you know, six or seven minutes in front. Um, he said, uh, and he, he sort of was running beside me for, you know, 30 metres. I said, I said, what's going on? And he said, uh, I don't want to alarm you, but there's a bloke that's run for 20th. He's in second place and he's running faster than you. <laughs> I, remember, I remember thinking, oh, my God. And so uh, there was a guy called Steve McBean. And, um, and then third that year was... Um, Mate, who was third? See, there you go. That's a joke, isn't it? You can say that. That's a joke. Who got, who got third? I don't know. Yeah, uh, uh, look, I don't know. You're, you're telling the story. So it was all I can't on remember, mate. I, can't, I think... Yeah. I don't know. I, I yeah, don't know. It, doesn't, it doesn't matter. But yeah, just like... So, anyway, you've, gone, yeah, so you've won 84, you've won 85, you've won by more of a margin, you've gotten better at your, your skills and the conditions that you're racing in. Um, then you're... So like at that time... You got the cool and got a gold, right? But was there a professional series outside of that as well for yeah, short course so, Ironman? So, yeah, so Surf Lightsaving and Kellogg's Nutrigrain came up with a, basically six or seven two-hour races at different venues around Australia, and that started the Kellogg's Nutrigrain Ironman series. That was 1986. 86, okay. So, like, you've done the 84... Cooley Gold, you're on the 85 Cooley Gold, and then all of a sudden they start, okay, we can probably make this into a professional sport. Um, and then they start putting money on events in 86. Yeah. When did the Tobies come into this? So in 1989, so 86 to 89 was the Kellogg's Nutrigrain series. Um, and then 
there was a breakaway series that was planned out in 88. And, and in 89, that was launched at Surface Paradise um, doing the, the same course as the Calling Out of Gold, called the Gold Coast Gold. And so that was the launch of um, live television on Channel 10 showing uh, an Ironman series. And so I, I won that race which was the third time I did the course, the calling out of gold, and the last time I did it. Um, and that started the, the, the golden era of Ironman. So that ran for the better part of a decade. Yeah. Um, where, you know, it, it, at its peak, it was getting, you know, the numbers it was getting watching it were, were up there. I think cricket was the only thing over summer that was doing better numbers. Um, and the top guys became legitimate household names in the country. And, you know, the top 20 guys were full-time athletes that didn't have jobs. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was a fight to, to get through the trials to even make the series and get in as a, as a full-time athlete on the series. So it was, um, that, they, were, they were amazing times. They really were. And with this, so you had the Nutri-Grain start in 86 and you had the Tobies in 89. And they were, they were majority based around endurance Ironman races. Is that, would that be right? We changed, like to, to 89 it was, and then in 89 um, there were there were a few guys that um, streamlined, and not the word probably streamlined is not the right word. They they jazzed up the style of racing for television, and so Rido, myself, Trevor Hendy, Dwayne Ties, and a couple other the sort of main guys around at that time came up with different formats. So we came up with events like the um, the, the triple sprint, uh, the eliminator. We came up with one where you did the four water, uh, the three water legs, and you added up times, and then you went off on the last run leg based on those accumulated times. And you know, so we, we we it was a jazz up of what the sport was to then suit what the general public sitting in the lounge room at home would want to see and what was entertaining. So there was this. I suppose this sort of um, this balancing act between keeping the reputation of the sport and what, what the sport stood for and making a sport entertaining for the people at home to watch so that more people would want to watch it and the thing would get bigger and bigger. And so how, that obviously worked in the 90s, but as you've come forward, it, it hasn't really sort of captured, like, captured the, I guess, the general public anymore as much as it probably used to what what is the difference there do you think it's just mainly down to the amount of competition out there with sports and telecasting now because if you guys were household names in say the late 80s early 90s or through to the early 2000s what what has changed since then that maybe the guys now who are running around in the Ironman series have probably as good athletes as what you guys were but aren't really getting the exposure that you had back in that in that time so it's it look it, it, it's more than one thing. There's about six or seven reasons. Um, <clears throat> the first one is that you got to understand that the Ironman sport back in 1989 was the beneficiary of a serial war between two massive companies that used Ironman as leverage to try to get more space in the supermarket. Yeah, uh, it had nothing to do with Iron Man. It it they didn't care about myself or Trevor Hendy or Grant Kenny or whoever. Um, what they wanted to do was the more meterage, the more shelf space they got in Coles and Woolworths, 
the bottom line of their business went up by tens of millions of dollars. So yeah. Uncle Toby has the secondary secondary cereal company here in Australia behind the, the, the massive Kellogg's brand, um, took on a very aggressive approach using Man and using a breakaway series to leverage the brand of Guy Leach, the brand of Trevor Handy, the brand of Grant Kenny on their products, on their, their packaging to sell more cereal. And then yeah. by doing that, go back to Woolworths and Coles and say, mate, we're, we're series that promotes our, our, our products. We want more space on the shelves. So that was, a, that was the start of, and then they chucked a, a lot of money into us being on television. So it was their money that made us famous. So that's the first thing. So it became a forced market and a war between two companies. So we got paid more than what we, we, we ever got paid before because of that. And they did a really good job of packaging up on television, our sport and making it look exciting so the general, general public wanted to watch it. The next reason why it, it went so well was because um, we didn't have a diluted, um, a diluted media market. So what I mean by that is there was seven, nine and 10 and channel two as a minor part. And the only chance you got to watch live sport was on three channels. And that was it. And you, you couldn't go to the internet because the internet didn't exist. You couldn't go and um, go and stream it somewhere else. That didn't exist. And the only way you could watch it was to go to the Cirque Club and watch it live on, on TV like, like a lot of Cirque Clubs did or at home or go and put your VCR on your, your, your recorder, tape it and then watch it later. That was it. So because yeah. of it, lots and lots and lots of people watched it. And there wasn't this, this like this immediacy of actually getting information straight away on your phone because none of that was around. So that's the next reason. And the, the biggest mistake that, um, look, I believe the biggest mistake they made with the Ironman sport from an Uncle Toby's point of view was that there was no exit strategy on when Grant Kenny retired, when Trevor Hendy retired and myself, on building up the other names to take over from these guys that were household names in the country. Yeah. There was no no plan in place to build up Guy Andrews's profile, to build up Joshie Blair, to build up these other guys coming through so they could actually take the mantle of these other guys that, that were on the cup, the, 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 on the products on the, you know, the front of the cereal boxes and all the rest of it. So that, that took, put a dent in the whole thing as well. And the other one is that big business doesn't like to sit still. And so when a new general manager comes in, a new marketing manager of a company, um, the board of directors changes or whatever, mate, they want to go and put their own mark on what they're doing. And sometimes they'll, make, they'll go and make change for change's sake. So yeah. you know, to think that the Ironman series is going to keep getting $5 million a year from Uncle Toby's, it was never going to happen. And I always knew leading into what we were doing that there was an expiry date. And I knew that we were in a forced market that was never going to be around forever. Um, yeah. and, and I knew that because of just, yeah, just understanding business a bit more, I suppose. But, but you know, it, it's just a sad, it's sad to see that there's guys now and girls coming up with great ability that want to train hard but don't, didn't get the, the opportunities that we got. So, yeah. Yeah, and it is it is quite interesting because, like, I think even for myself, like, my I want to be able to create a better platform for the next generation coming through. 
And unfortunately, that sort of just didn't happen because of like external factors outside of your control, essentially, from what I'm hearing. Like you just, what was happening at the time was just sort of unprecedented in a way. Like that, that, that serial war and those two big corporates going against each other created that sport essentially for you guys, but never had a really exit strategy or, or a future plan for that sport. It was just all about that 10 years or whatever those directors may have been in. And they wanted to really push their product through that. And they were getting really good ROIs. So they were doing it really well. Um, it's, it's interesting. You, you made a point about, uh, Joshy Blair and I like that talk about putting a dent in someone's ego. Mate. Oh. I remember, I remember, oh, no. I remember there was an article. Joshy Blair was my favorite guy. and It really hurt you. Well, I just couldn't believe you didn't pick me. <laughs> I felt mate, sick. I felt sick for days. For you got to remember that you'd won three cool and get a goals before I was born. Yeah, like, yeah. And it's hard to believe people at home are watching this, this podcast and they're thinking there's literally not much difference between Boothy. And his, re- and his receding hairline and Leachy sitting on the screen as well. You know, it's- yeah, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like your, uh, your eyebrow to your forehead ratio is a lot bigger than mine, but I'm not far behind, don't it's worry. Just, it's just the screen, mate. It's just the screen. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, you're yeah. just looking up. Um, I just, yeah, so, exactly. The angle. So we're looking at uh, the Ironman series as a big part of your sport, but you, I think you won an Australian Ironman title as well. Is that right? Yeah, no, no. I've um, I got runner up twice and I got a third. So, in the sprint stuff, I I came across the um, the the force of Trevor Hendy at his best. So, I mean, uh, which I don't I don't um, I don't dislike the fact that that was the case. But um, but I literally got a bloke. He got me a couple of times by tiny margins in um at the Australian titles on the Ironman and then another time I got third. But um, in, in short course racing, from a, a, just a pure natural talent point of view and what he could do over the, the spectrum, mate, there's never been an athlete like him. And I copped him at his best and he made me a better athlete across the board. Um, but no, I didn't. So I went close. Um, for me, it's, it's like the mindset for me is interesting. Like I during my Ironman career, I chased other events like I, I, I always liked the the harder longer races and the grind and that feeling the feeling like the workload you put in leading into a race and then doing that tough event um gave me a better feeling at the end of it if i won like i felt yeah. i got more more out of that um personally than just a short race that was over quickly so not not using that as any excuse at all because i you know when i'm racing i want to win anything i do but I, I, I did take to those longer races more. And I, you know, I, I'd chase fun runs during the winter. Um, uh, you know, when I was doing training for cooling out of golds, I'd chase marathon races. Um, you know, I went over and won the, um, the, the Maui to um, Waikiki swim. Um, I won two fun runs during my career running against guys that, you know, the fields were a thousand in, a, in an 8K run race, et cetera. And did Molokai in, in the 90s on the ski and, you know, had a crack at that. So I was always chasing other things because I felt like just because you're an Ironman doesn't mean you should just sit in that sweet spot. And it was a chance to go into other disciplines and prove that you were strong in those as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's pretty similar to the way I approach things as well. I probably wasn't, I definitely wasn't as good as someone like yourself at Ironman racing, but I know for me personally, like finishing in like a two hour or a three hour race and, or even like an hour race, and you've just gone through so many different phases mentally and physically. Like you, you might start, you might feel good, and then you feel terrible at 20 minutes, then you feel okay after 30, and then you feel excellent at 45. But then when you're coming down to the finish line, you're just like 
exhausted. You're coming into that last like 15 minutes and you know you've got to attack, you know you've got to perform. And I think that sort of like those little mind games, people might think that maybe is boring, but I think it really relates to like the community and the style of, um, I guess, the style of athlete that it sort of um, like wants to, wants to do those type of events because you sort of have that community aspects, I think, especially the ocean paddling and sup racing and that sort of thing where the best guys sit on the same start line as the, the most average paddler out there. And it's, it's quite a cool concept. We're all racing for the same thing at the same time. And that, that sort of endurance element, I think I really resonate with. And it's really cool mm-hmm. to sort of hear you say that same thing. Um, on that, so give me an idea of Grant Kenny was what, what years was he strong? And then what years was like sort of Trevor strong was like Trevor more the nineties and Grant was more the eighties or was Grant the seventies. There's always, I always get a bit confused because like, obviously you hear your name, Grant's name, Trev's name, um, Guy Andrews, like, and then obviously the latest sort of extent and you have like, um, Kai Hurst, Shannon Eckstein, Zane Holmes, but they were more sort of early two thousands. Can you give us like a bit of a rundown of the names that were around when you were racing? I'll tell you something funny. I sort of cool is that, um, so Shannon, Shannon and Kane Eckstein's dad raced the first calling out of golf. So he got yeah. 10th in that first ever race back in 84, you know, before these, these kids were born. Um, and so, yeah, so, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I think back now and go, shit, you know, am I, am I really that old when you start thinking of that? But if you think of the sport, the Ironman sport, and the, the, the ones that have jumped up and really sort of, um, made a name for themselves. It's been like this five-year window. So there's been other names that have popped in there as well, which I'm not taking away from their efforts as well. But when you when you start talking about, give me that those decade runs across to the 2000s. So starting 1980. So Grant Kenny was unbeatable for five years. He literally didn't lose a short course Ironman race in five years. He was a professional athlete at the time, like no other. Didn't have a job, was paid good money by Kellogg's Nutrigrain and the like. He trained for the Olympic Games in kayaking as well, which he, he, he got a bronze medal eventually at the Olympics. Um, so he did that five-year stint. So he took us to the middle of the 80s. 1984, the cooling out of gold hit. And a new athlete emerged. People that had to go and be good at long races as well as be able to go and cover short stuff. And that, and that put a broom through the place and stirred it up a bit. Because if you're a power athlete that's a sprinter and you've been asked to do two hours up to four hours, as you would know, um, with sport, only certain types can do it. So that was a shuffle up. So then I popped my head up and I had a run for that five years where, you know, most races I went in, in that endurance style, you know, they were wins or close to it. You know, I didn't get worse in a second or a third in a bunch of years, like for five years. in that time, the Mercer brothers popped up at the back end of the 80s. So at the back end of my five-year run, they started coming through. And then the Uncle Toby's Ironman series started in 89-90, right? Then the force of Trevor Hendy started. So I was still going through the Grand Kennys, the Mercers and Trevors and would beat Trevors over those longer races. But, but the, 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 the genius of the of the sprinting Trevor Hendy came through. And then for the next five years, everyone talked about that and the skills yeah. and things he did that had never been seen before. So th- there was other guys that flipped through, like Guy Andrews had his little stint for a few years as well in there and he was dominant, you know, but Trevor was still there and I was still there. But Trevor was winning most of the stuff for a while. 
And then off the back of that, then, then you had the guy, Andrew, sort of, and myself, uh, like I retired and guys stayed for a bit longer. Then Kai Hurst came through. And so 96, 97, there was Kai Hurst, Phil Clayton, those guys in the 2000. And then the Eckstein dynasty started at the yeah. back end of like 2000 moving forward. So, yeah, it was, you could sort of basically define three decades of sport through about six athletes in Ironman. Yeah. Um, that really sort of won a lot and won more than most. And I think um, that's, and that's cool to hear like what you're talking about there. Cause it has been quite confusing for me in a way, cause there isn't like, I don't know, there's no like biography of surf life saving or the background of Ironman racing really like, see, it's really hard to sort of break down who was where at what time. And I guess I probably could have studied it, but I haven't looked into it, but it's really cool to get that sort of feedback of like who was where. So you sort of had like Grant and then you sort of had yourself and then you had Trevor and Guy Andrews leading into Kai Hurst and Shannon Eckstein sort of era as well. So, and then probably the Zane yeah. Holmes sort of, yeah. Like well, a Zane, Zane's there well. too. So you could say him as well. Yeah. And you've got, yeah. I mean, I mean, Ritter went through, through the whole time I did and, and some and didn't win, but he was always in that top five position as well. So you had these other names and characters that played their part in the Ironman story. But when you start talking about the, the, the mega stars of the sport, the ones that just dominated at times, they were the names. Yeah, yeah. Names. and so when I mean, I know you're speaking about doing different sports. I know you had a, a your hand in trying to be a triathlete for a while, like a professional triathlete. Was that was that that yeah. was around like '95? Was it? Yeah, uh, yeah. So you've done a little bit of research. Booth, uh, mate, I looked up Wikipedia before you came on, so I know a little bit about you. But and obviously our conversations over the past like yeah, five we, years or so. We, we I listen, mate. Not. You're surprising. You're surprising me, but I, I do listen. I'm your, I'm your second most favorite athlete behind Joshy Blair. That's right. Yeah. If you're listening out there, Joshy, hello, mate. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, I did I did have a crack. I, I had this, um, and look, the Hawaiian Ironman triathlon was the thing that lured me to having a go at triathlon. And, and at the time, there was, a, there was a series on television nationally that had, back in those days, the cream of the best triathletes in the world. And they were, they were pretty much, some of them, bordering on household names themselves. I was certainly massive names in, in, in multi-sport endurance events in the world. You had Greg Welsh and Brad Bevan and Miles Stewart and you had a whole host of guys that were big names here in this country. And there was a triathlon series that was over that sort of hour and a half, two-hour race like, like we used to do, but set up the television with triathlon. So I jumped into that out of Ironman. I, I, I got to a stage where in the Ironman sport... Um, I, I, I was losing motivation. Um, I wanted to do something different. And I knew that at 35 years of age or thereabouts, um, to have a crack at the wine Ironman was something that I didn't want to leave for too long. Yeah. So I jumped over. Um, looking back, I didn't get to do the race because I just kept breaking down. And it was at a time where my body probably needed a year's rest of yeah. just training from the age of eight. Um, and I just kept, I think my immune system was no good and I just kept picking stuff up and I didn't get a run at it properly. So look, it was, I would call it a failed attempt from that point of view, as far as results went and not doing the actual race. Um, no regrets with it, but um, yeah, it, because of just the breakdowns and not getting enough training done, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. 
Yeah. yeah, for sure. So you never got that kind of opportunity to sort of really sort of test yourself against those best guys because your body was breaking down. Did you have issues with stress fractures? I know a lot of guys who've been in like non-impact yep. sports who come, come across to an impact sport like running or like triathlon. Did you have a lot of issues with like stress fractures, shin splints, that sort of stuff? I got them with running, yeah. Um, yep. And I probably got away with it in the surf, I mean, because you do more training. You'd, I'd go and train on soft sand yep. a bit, going in toe first and not that pounding on the surface protected that i was lucky out of all the ironman's a sport that you you it's 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 a game of roulette nearly in that you've got four events in one sport and and to be the best you've got to be good at all of them you've got to have no weakness and even then you might not win it um it's a tough sport and how you go about setting up your um 20 sessions a week can be different to how Trevor Handy does it or Craig Riddington. Like Riddle yep. had to do more running because he wasn't a natural runner. Yep. Um, I did less running because I naturally could run well um, and put more time into other things. So for me, the running side, when I had to go and do more of it in triathlon, um, I had my moments and I probably tried to gorge myself too quickly in trying to catch up to guys that have been doing it for a long time and overcooked and overcooked the mark because I just did too much. So there was probably some elements of mistakes there, looking back on it. Um, but I was that athlete that if I won in training, it just made me feel good in a race. So yeah. every time I trained, and if there were 15 guys there or whatever, I would bust my nuts to beat everyone and try to psychologically break people in training. So when I got to a race, I had that advantage. And, and it was the way I worked. And be, because of it, I suffered at times um, by getting sick and getting injured. But I believe that no one trained harder than me in what I did at that time. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I think is quite interesting with what you've just said there. So you find that um, different athletes should be approaching their training differently to other people. Like I know for myself personally, as soon as like I came out of that sort of, it was like a regime essentially that, that most surf clubs were following where you just, you do this training program. It's similar to kiking. Everyone do exactly the same thing. But when I came out of that and I started to, approach training for myself that's when I, I saw myself get incrementally better because I started looking at all those weaknesses that I had and it's interesting that you said that you're you're naturally a good runner and but you were a swimmer so it's, it's there's not it's not very often that swimmers were good runners like how did that come about just got lucky mate yeah. so, um, just a naturally you know, talented guy no 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 like, honestly all jokes aside because I do muck around saying that I am the most talented athlete of all time and all those things taking the piss but in, in, in retrospect and in, in reality, um, and as we all know in sport, there's always that guy that's got more talent. You can, we can all name that one person when we are growing up that was just would beat you when they were younger and they just had it and they never went on with it, right? So we all know that and we can take that aside. So, um, so I wasn't the most talented. Did I have a natural ability at endurance racing? Without doubt. Uh, for some reason, I could get to the finish line and in my whole career, I never lost a race over two hours. I did over 20 of them. And I never got to the finish line feeling like I had too much left in the, in the tank, petrol-wise. Yep. But I never burned it all up in a race. I never burned out in a race. So somehow, the training I did, when I put it to a race, I literally would pace myself to perfection. And it went unbelievably well. And I didn't have to drink much fluid. The first year, I did Molokai on the ski. I drank one and a half litres and found out after the race, the boys drank four litres and still won by five minutes. 
So yeah. you just go, well, what is that? Mate, it's just luck. It's just, I was just born lucky with that. But other areas of what I, I do, not so fortunate. So you've got to work at that. But the thing is, what does make a world champion? A world champion is made up by someone that ticks all the boxes and does the 1% better than the rest of them and believes in themselves when they have to and puts themselves in a position where they, they, they race brave and race powerfully and they've got a good head on their shoulders. So for me, you know, I, I look back at everything I've done and I've been really, really, I suppose my belief system has always been that my preparation and what I do, I believed in it more than um, what I believed in what other people were doing. I always stress tested it against what others were doing and, and felt like mine was better. And, and because of that, when I went to the line and I used to race, I always felt like I deserved to win um, more so than expected to win. And because of that, I always raced yeah, confidently, bravely, wasn't afraid to leap from the start. All those things that um, help you win, um, but I never felt that it came down to anything other than um, doing those things right. And that comes back to like my favorite saying at the moment, we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to our highest level of preparation. And it's just so evident in all the people I'm speaking to, like even when you're talking about you were trying to work on your weaknesses, like you're a natural runner, natural swimmer, but then you did like, you had to ski and the board that you probably weren't as good at, but you really worked on that. And even talking to Jordan Mercer the other day, she was like, I wasn't good at swimming. So I had to swim hard for five years to eventually mm -hmm. win the Nutri-Grain Ironwoman series when she was 21. And to hear yourself like sort of talking in the same way, like going over and winning the, the Molokai title by, by five minutes, that must have been an interesting experience because obviously you've done a lot of endurance racing and you weren't a good ski paddler, but then all of a sudden you're going over and you're, who were you racing against and sort of what was the difference between you winning and, and, and losing that year? Because obviously you I'll, went over I'll there. Go, I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go back a step and set this up. So yeah. I wasn't just not a good ski paddler. Mate, I, I, so I didn't sit on a ski till I was 17. And so I, would, I could lose Ironman races because of my ski length. Yeah. And I knew that, right? So in the evaluation of my Ironman performance and where I could win and lose the race, I could win it with a swim leg. I could win it with a run leg. My board leg was solid, not, not unbelievable when I, when I started. And it, and it got stronger and stronger, but it was never, I could never win a race with the board. But I could lose a race with the board leg. But the yep. ski leg, literally in certain conditions, I could literally lose the race because I had no background preparation like other guys. So because of that, where I train on the Northern Beaches, we'd go to the pool in the mornings, like four mornings a week, and swim 5K or whatever it was in the pool, right? I'd get out. I would then sneak over to Narrabeen Lakes, get the K1 that I had parked there underneath someone's house on the water, and sneak out and paddle 10 kilometres, straight after doing five kilometers on the swim, um, while everyone else went home for breakfast, them unbeknownst that I was doing this, right? Then I would turn back up at lunchtime to do the board session and then do the ski session at night. I did that for two years straight because I knew that, mate, I did not want to go into a race and have the ski leg being the reason why I lost. And it was my living. Yeah. It's like what I did for a job. So I did that for two years. And that was from basically um, 1990, 1990 to about 1992. So when yeah. I turned out the Molokai two years after that, um, and you've got to remember, like, Molokai was a big um, race to take on board for an Ironman because you started training June 1, you trained right through to September, you raced on televised events from September right through to February, then you prepared for the surf life-saving titles, state titles, February, March, did those for the surf club, 
by the time you got to the back end of March, but all you wanted to do was rest April and May and have a complete break before you started again June 1. It was your job, that's what you did. And you needed those eight weeks to just mentally have a rest and just forget about it because you were just spent by then. So to go and do Molokai meant that you, you didn't get a break. You had to jump on the ski and do all these miles to get yourself ready for a, um, for a race, you know, eight weeks down the track. That was your period when you normally rest from Ironman. So I committed in 94 to go, you know what? I reckon I'm a, I'm a chance in this. If I get the right conditions, I think I could actually have a chance of, um, of being right up the front. And so when I turned up there, there was Grant Kenny racing. He'd won it, I don't know how many times he'd, he'd won I Molokai. think he won it about Seven, five eight. times. Yeah, like a lot. He won a yeah. lot. Um, Dean Gardner, who's won it nine or ten times now. Um, there were guys like Shane Dalziel that at the time was the Australian surf ski champion, represented Australia in kayaking, unbelievable over distance, and made all the other names back in that day that, that did the event, right, all turned up. Um, if it was blowing at 20 knots downwind, I wasn't going to win the race, right? Because there was guys there that, that on, on downwind, um, they're faster. I would have finished in the top 10, top eight, something like that, but I wouldn't have won it. I turned, woke up in the morning of the race. There was a six-foot swell, glassy, and it was about 100,000 degrees temperature. Couldn't have yeah. been better than what we I literally but, woke up and went, I woke up, looked out the window at the, at the beach where you started, and it was glass. There was swell. There was a, a shore dump breaking at about six foot. Yeah. And I, I remember walking outside out of the air conditioning, and it felt like it was 35 degrees already at like 5.30 in the morning. And yeah. I thought... This is my day. Seriously. I, didn't, I yeah. wasn't looking forward to the pain I was going to go through, but I thought, you know what? These are my conditions because yeah. I don't drink much water. I love hot conditions. My body loves it, and it's going to be a stinking grind the whole way. Where you just yeah. have to be mentally up for it. So, um, so that was that. Yeah, I sort of... Um, it, like, it's an interesting race, Molokai, because notwithstanding the fact that you, you're going a long way, yeah, you, when you get over there the first time, people start talking about currents and they talk about the locals know which way to go and you've got to go up north and you, then some people go, you've got to go down south. And so, mate, you're getting all this information that you're yeah. not used to. Never been there before, didn't know the race for, for anything. And by the time I got to the two-hour mark, mate, I had a, I had a half a kilometre lead on the rest of the, the guys. And I'm like, I don't even know where I'm going. I literally <laughs> yeah. just, I'm guessing. You start seeing it at two hours. Yeah, I'm looking at this point going, is that the point? I'm screaming at the, my, my, my boat that's supporting me. And funnily enough, there was um, one of the Ironmen came over, a guy called John Robinson came over to, um, to handle for me. He just wanted to come over for a holiday and, and go surfing. So he's come over and he's my handler. So literally, I went over the night before on one of those small, small planes um, before the race. Yeah, he said he'd come over on the morning because he wanted to go out the night before in, in Waikiki, right? So he goes out the night before, turns one on and has like the biggest night ever on the drink. So he gets to the plane at whatever God, God the hour it is in the morning, still drunk and gets, gets on the plane, gets over there and mate, gets on the, um, the support boat to handle for me. And for the first two hours where I needed a change of water, mate, he's asleep underneath the, uh, the deck yeah. with, with a massive hangover, still drunk, trying to, trying to sleep it off. So I'm screaming at the boat because I've run out of this like little water bowl, yeah. bowl of water. I've got a lead of 500 metres. And Robbo comes out from underneath the boat, <laughs> his hair up everywhere, like 
wanting to vomit because he was felt, felt so crook. And he's called out to me, he goes, where's everyone else? I said, I'm in front. And he goes, he goes, what do you need? I said, I need, I need water. I need water. I got no water. So anyway, I said, go forward with the boat and jump in the water and hand me the water bottle as I go past. And this is what he said to me. He goes, there's sharks in there. I'm not getting in there. No way. So he threw the water bottle over to me. Anyway, but it, look, you know, funny stories. Yeah. Funny yeah. Stories. But yeah, so is this, is this at the stage where you're still using like the drink? I remember Dean telling me the drink bottle was between the legs during your dickies and your yeah. pumping across. Yeah, that was the way yeah, to go, I had, hey? I had, Magnum I PI style. I had Speedos on. Mate, there were no such thing as light jackets back then. Mate, no mobile phones, no um, no beacons or anything. And you had the water bottle, yeah, in your, your footwell or if you had some sort of tape on the thing just, you know, stuck to the deck. And you paddled a, a, a spec ski that was lighter than, um, than what they were made at 18 kilos. So mine was like 14 kilos, a yep. Hayden ski. Mate, that's what you did. That was as good as it got. So... Um, you got sunburnt, you just, yeah, you had a hat on, you had some Speedos, swimmers on, and yeah, you, you did your best. So, um, so that was Molokai. And I remember um, the, um, the, the following year, so I had the win, and the boys were like, you're going back to defend your title, Ichi? I'm like, not going back. They're like, what do you mean? You're not going back. I said, mate, chances of me winning this thing again and getting the same conditions are minimal. I'm not going back and won it. I'm not yeah. doing it again. You get yeah, nodded, right? One. So Dino taught me into going over and handling for him. So he still hadn't won the, the race at that stage, right? And so I, I thought, oh, I'll go over for a holiday and go surfing and, and jumped on his boat. And that was, the, uh, that was the year that he won his first one. So that was the following year. Yeah. So that was 95, Dean won his first one then? You must have been, yeah, I won in 94 and I handled for him, yeah. Yeah, so then he sort of started his little bit of a run through there because I think he won, he won. He was winning them up to like the end of 2000s, weren't he? wasn't he? Just, just phenomenal on on chop. Like if he if he got a flat day, he would have he would have struggled. It just wasn't. Yeah. It, look, yeah, you know, not still still an awesome paddler, but his his technique and his mindset is not suited to just those flat conditions. Yeah, those um, big grind days. He's just he's just so technically smart with the way he surfs and the way he reads the runs. And like I even know like sitting behind him on a double, like his rating is just through the roof. Like when you he just and that's so where he generates. He generates his speed from that, though. He, he generates his speed. He does a few things which um, others don't do. He'll naturally lean forward and lean forward the most to, to pull himself down runs. He's got a phenomenally high rate rating that he can keep going for a long time, Not, notwithstanding that his skill level in, in those conditions. Uh, mate, if there's anyone better, I, mate, there is no one better. There might be people mm. up near him, but there's no one better. Um, he makes the right decisions pretty much all the time on what direction to go. Um, but he has a big, big engine and he generally loves being in the bump and he'll do it with a smile on his face. And if he's got to hurt and bleed, he'll bleed because he loves it. Put him yeah. in flat conditions, the love's not there and the <laughs> yeah. bleeding's not going to be as much. Yeah. And, um, and his short rating doesn't suit a grind over four hours in flat conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, his love for the, the flat water has just never been there, but his love for the bump no. will be there forever. So, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah you, you did. So you did that and you sort of coming to the end of your competitive career in like 95, I guess. That's sort of like the end of your competitive career. Then what did you, how was that transition from obviously being an athlete to moving into the, the corporate space or using your brand to create different business opportunities? Like what was, like what was your passion after sport? I, look, in, I tell you what, in, 
high profile athletes <clears throat> that come off just an amazing run, you know, and we got that run in that period where, you know, for younger people listening to this, you, you probably don't understand, but to give you a little example, um, you know, we go to shopping centers for appearances to sign autographs. And the first few that we did, there were 5,000 people, kids, you know, um, waiting to get autographs. And there were security people blocking people coming in. Like, just bedlam, right? Just bedlam. So to say that now, you're thinking, oh, look, he must be exaggerating. But mm-hmm. to the point where I had to move houses at one stage during my career down the beach because um, kids, school kids found out where my house was and they'd park out the front of there waiting for me to come home from training to get autographs and just 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 want to touch you. So, it, look, it was just bizarre times. So I had to sell yeah. the place, right, just to get out of that 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 area where the buses um, stopped with school kids. So yeah. you, you had a weird – you had a really weird time. So – because of that, well, you're, yeah. Well, you're essentially a celebrity, which is probably what most athletes now probably don't understand in the same sport. But yeah, back in that day, that's exactly what you were. You were a household yeah. name, so, you like, were basically a celebrity. Yeah, but at the highest order in in the pecking order of sport in Australia, because of just the platform that you're given. So uh, yeah, and and I was very aware that um, that athletes that retired with that sort of um, focus on them, that got out. Um, there was a there was a graveyard of problems for a lot of them. Um, yeah, I'm not going to name names, but household names that come from rugby league and swimming and boxing and all these sports where right, you've seen them do things where you go, that's unbelievable, and you just you look up to them and all these things. And mate, you see them two years after they're retired on the front page of the paper for something else, and you think. How did they go down the toilet that quick, you know? Yeah. And, and how could that happen? So I was very aware that that was a problem. And I was very aware that, and I thought to myself, the highs that you've got and the world that you've lived in, which is not real, is not going to be there as much moving forward. So I accept that and, and literally be ready for the fact that, you know, you could feel down, you could feel depressed, um, you could feel anxious. You could lose self-esteem. Um, you could lose your identity. All those things that are massive issues for someone who gets put up on a pedestal that lives an unnormal life goes through. So to the point where if you value yourself based on your performance and your image and how people treat you in an unreal world, then you are screwed. Screwed, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying I was the best at that transformation over, but I was very aware of it. I was aware that the highs I got from winning the cooling at a goal in front of 200,000 people on that day or more, that feeling was never going to be there again in my life. That height, the heightened feeling I got from that. So I probably went through a stage where I didn't stop training twice a day for 10 years after I retired because I was still chasing even the feeling of the endorphins that made me feel good. So it was, it was, it was an odd transition. But what I did know, Boothie, was that, that I liked um, health and fitness. I loved being healthy and fit. And I thought I could add value to other people in that area. I, I also knew that mate, the money I got from sponsorship and from endorsements in corporate Australia 
was a lot easier money to get than to race for four hours and win 20 grand in a cool and get a goal. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to lose the feeling of, 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 of being involved in companies doing good out there. Um, I didn't want to go and have a normal job. I, 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 I didn't think I could do it anyway. I nearly felt like I'd been trained to not be that person through just yeah. my life, what, I, what I've always done. So, so I, 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 I just, I, I basically hatched a plan to, to become the voice of, I didn't want to be another athlete that was like, oh, here's guy leads the ex Ironman champion. Cause that didn't have any value in the corporate world. But what it did was, what did have value was being guy leads the health and wellness expert, guy leads the fitness guru um, and that side. So I started pushing that and I started building up my name around that. It was fine that they tagged me as being um, the ex Ironman champion, but I used to get the media to call me Australia's number one fitness guy. Yeah. Wanted to, I wanted to tweak the, tweak the rhetoric on how people saw me so that I could then leverage that into corporate deals um, and, and, and do business in that respect. And so things like I built my own fitness range that I cut deals with Big W to have um, stuff in there. I jumped to you, mate. I was ahead of you with stand-up paddleboards, mate. I had my own range of stand-up paddleboards in Anaconda stores, kayaks. You, mate, and I know, I know you could say right now, but Lisa, you don't even know that much about stand-up paddleboard paddling. No, I didn't. But the persona that I presented to the market didn't know that, right? Yeah. So, you know, so I, I, I had my range of that stuff, kayaks, paddles, clothing. My clothing range, my fitness clothing range at Big W was selling $2 million worth of product a month out of Big W. And I did that through putting on events. I put it on, I put it on Guinness Book of World Records fitness events to keep my, my name and my message to the marketplace relevant, to keep me um, top of mind, and just to change the whole um, angle of just being the ex-Ironman guy to being the, the, the guru in fitness. And, and the thing was, I knew that it wasn't as stretched to go over there because everyone sees Ironman as being fit and healthy. And I protected my, my image and my brand during my sporting days and got lucky that cameras and videos weren't on phones. That, you know, anytime I did screw up, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. shown anyway. It wasn't so I came out being, front and centre all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't do anything horrific, but, you know, like I, I, I come out of it, you know, squeaky clean. Well, it doesn't so, mean you didn't make mistakes through your career. Like, obviously, we all make mistakes. We all do different stuff. Like, and obviously, that doesn't necessarily link to the Guy Leach brand or any other brand that's out there. You've got to make sure that what you're putting out there is, is um, in rhetoric with what you want to portray. And that's what you've done really well. Yeah, look, I just, there's probably seen some lucky pieces. Like I said, if you were around today, someone taking a picture of you slurring or, you know, video of you slurring in a pub or whatever it is, you know, may or may not cause you some grief. We didn't have to worry about that back in our day. It was just different times. But I was always very aware that if you want corporate Australia to keep putting money in your pocket and you want to do that so that you can go and all do all the things that you love, then you need to have um, something of value and you need to be authentic and you need to be top of mind. So I just yeah. got good at um, um, building that platform like I did in sport in the business world to go and take advantage of opportunities that that i presented um that got presented to me and and looked out for opportunities that would uh, would make sense and um you know i put a pr company on we'd, we'd we'd have articles written out there in the press we'd, we'd put on these events where 
2,000 people turned up and I trained them on the beach at Manly and got television there to film it. And I got cameras down there to film videos on it and put it up on social media and did all those things that, um, that you did to, to keep the exposure going and it worked, it worked, yeah. you know? And, um, so yeah, so, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think that the, the common factor in all of this that people need to realize is that I, I always like from the day I left school, I just picked the thing I loved the most. Yeah. I love fitness. I still do. I train today. I'm, I'm 56 years of age. I train every day. You know, it's like, I just monetize that better than everyone else. Um, yeah. And that's been quite uh, inspiring. I think for someone like me, even I like love just it. watching Still your journey it. and and seeing you follow your passions the whole way through, like you just pick things that you're passionate about and you just did those things to the best of your ability. It wasn't like you were necessarily more special than anyone else. Obviously you were talented, you're, you're very strong minded and you had like that determination to get things done, but you just pick something and you were never like hesitant to do it. Like there wasn't, they probably detractors that people would always say like, Oh guys, like this, this loud personality. He's like, he's really lucky, yeah. but it's like, you don't, you weren't lucky. Like you just put things in place that made you have the success. Like, cause we make our own luck at the end of the day. And when you're talking about the other athletes who've come off their careers, like especially like Olympic athletes, you do see that they really struggled to have that next transition and something like for someone like me at the moment, who is probably at the peak of his probably athletic career and everything sort of stopped this year with COVID-19 it's kind of a bit of a, a different sort of element. I think a lot of people are struggling with it out there and it's cool to hear your approach to anything like that. Cause obviously I coming off your career, you decided to be passionate. You decided to keep pushing forward and actually finding things that you were passionate about outside of sport. And I think that's something that people need to be looking at right now when they cannot do what they're normally able to do. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their lifestyle. They're not able to do the things they're normally able to do. So what would your advice be specifically for around at the moment? What, what would you say to people? Yeah. So look, to go back about what people think of me, I mean, it's true. I am loud and I am confident and, um, and, you know, and, and, I, and, and some and people looking from the outside in would, would judge me on that. But, but certainly from the point of view of, um, of, of, you know, of, of taking myself seriously and all the rest of it, I don't take myself very seriously in what I do. And, um, and, you know, and I, I'm the first one to laugh at, at some of the stuff I do and you, you know, what I'm like Boothy, I just take the piss, but, but to, 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 to answer your question now, it, yeah, we're in strange times. Um, it, you know, we've never seen anything like this. The only people that would know anything like this is if you were really, really old and you've been through a war. I don't even know if there's anyone still alive that's been through that. So um, it, 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 odd times and, and, you know, scary times for a lot of people. Um, my, my advice is to... You know, to wake up every day and, and, and focus on the positives, not the negatives. I think that when you start looking at the situation, some people are in worse positions than others. Certain sectors of business have been decimated based on the circumstances. And I understand that they've got a, you know, a harder road ahead than others. Um, but I think everything's attitudinal. I think that you, you, you've just got to, you got to roll with it. And I always look at, you know, we live in Australia. We live in a place where, you know, we are lucky here. Um, you know, you, you can get work if you want work bad enough. Um, you know, you don't live in a third world country where you've got nowhere to live. You can't find food. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, we're in a different place here. So I think that, you know, we, we really need to focus on, on the good bits. This thing's not going to last forever. 
And mate, the, the sunshine will come up around the corner. For me personally, um, and, and I'm not um, demeaning other people's struggle and I'm, I'm not trying to say that, um, that COVID-19 is not a, not a terrible thing, but I always look at things from the point of view of, I like the grind sometimes. I like mm. the struggle. I like being put in a position where, um, where you've got to try to work it out. You've got to, you've got to be agile. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be open to ideas. You've got to think differently. Um, you, you, your greatest successes and your, the best results you have and the feelings you get from that are when you work the hardest, you know? And hence what we were talking about before around endurance racing and why I leveraged towards those more than sprint because I got a better feeling when I had to push harder and it hurt more and I had to, I had to go for longer to get a result. Um, yeah. I feel like this is a little bit like that. Um, yeah, we just, I, I think the attitude's a really big part of it. You know, I, I like to think that, you know, like, I, I, you know, I have my moments of doubt every now and then and, Everyone does, and you, you, you question situations at times. But you know, I think that you've just. You've, I think for anyone that's um, that performs, and anyone that wants to keep a smile on their face, you should just go and third party say to yourself, from the outside looking in, what am I actually thinking right now? What am I actually saying to myself um, internally? And is the stuff I'm saying to myself productive and going to make me happy? You know, and it's funny. It's like, I'm not trying to be a psychologist here, but. but no, it's excellent. I, it's really, really good yeah, stuff. Every now, every now and then I, 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 I stop short and go, what am I actually? Because when you don't say it out loud and you're internally saying it, and if you keep repeating something, it might be the furthest thing from the truth. It might be so unrealistic, really that it, it, it's bizarre, but if you say it enough, you start believing it, right? Mm. And so I, I, I constantly go, say, well, I don't constantly, but I, at times I, I think to myself, what am I actually internally saying to myself right now? Is that correct? And is this actually not a smart thing to be saying? And I think everyone should do that. You should at times just stop, stop once a week, particularly right now and say, what's the messaging I'm giving to myself? Because you're six, the six inches between your ears is what creates your reality, yeah? And so your beliefs can be different to mine and they're created through the past and through situations and through other people telling you things. But at the end of the day, you can actually do something about that based on you just stepping aside and going, am I saying stuff to myself right now that's actually worthwhile or is this negative? Is this holding me back? Is this not actually making me feel good about myself? And what should I do about it? And change your tune. Yeah. yeah, and it's just great. I think your approach to the, everything that it goes into business, it goes into, well, it actually goes into your personality as well. Like when we're talking about like you're loud, you, you, you like to have fun, you talk to lots of people, but at the same time, you're very good at like engaging with different people. You're a very approachable person. You're, you're sort of your community and the people around you, like even like you're talking about the other day, like you got like 10,000 contacts on LinkedIn. You're reaching out to all those people all the time and you're really wanting to help others get better um, whether it's mentally, whether it's physically, like I know you're doing the defib stuff now and that happened because of a tragic incident. And it's, I think we all learn from our successes and our failures and we, and we sort of, in all those situations and circumstances, we're always trying to work out the why, but then work out the how to make things better going forward and how, how do we help people. And 
I think that's your approach to a lot of stuff. And I think with the COVID-19 thing, what you're saying there is, is, is so true. Like we can go look into what our passions are, which just goes back to previously what you were saying about really just find things that we really enjoy doing. Like our, I always say like, it's all about our time and effort. We can really focus our time and we can focus that effort. We may not be getting monetary value necessary at the moment. We may not have a job, but there is always things we can do. Like we only live on this earth once and we only have a certain amount of time. Like I know I go live each every, every day and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to die soon. I need to like get everything done. Like right now, like right, I need to do it today. Like why am I waiting for like a month or two months or next year? Like let's do it now. Like why wait? So I think yeah. that approach to everything is, is exactly what people should be thinking about right now. And I, th- I think that just like leads me on a point, like the, your, the way that you help your community and like through health and fitness, I think through your brand coming off sport, you are able to help more people be healthy. And now you're doing the same thing with DFibs. You're trying, I know you told me the other day, you were trying to save more lives than anybody else in Australia. Like more, so many people die from cardiac arrest every single day. And, and that's your new goal and your new passion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, like I, you know, I literally fell into to the deep side of things based on a guy that you know. I got a lot of people in the paddling world knew or they've heard of through um, the race that uh, we've got called the Chucky. And so a, a mate of mine, he had a cardiac arrest at the back end of one of my fitness classes that we we do paddling here in Sydney, um, on Sydney Harbour. I've been doing those for 18 years up until a month ago when we had to stop because of um, self-isolation. But um, but he, he suffered that, um, putting his, ski, his ocean ski back on the car. And um, and as it turned out, I, I was the one that um, got on his chest and started pumping his chest to, to, to try to um, save his life. Um, and this is just over four years ago now. Um, Chucky didn't make it and um, for me, the you know, notwithstanding the fact that to have your hands on your mate, and when I, I talk about my mate, he's like top three best friend of the time. Um, yeah, it, it is it is a shock to say the least, um, and you deal with that the best way you can. But you know, it, it, the stuff I learned after the fact was was equally as shocking as the moment I saw him slumped on the ground. And, and try to save him. And so what I learned from this was that, you know, having a heart attack is different to having a sudden cardiac arrest. And today in Australia, um, nearly 100 Aussies die from a cardiac arrest. And the cardiac arrest is when the electrical system in your body screws up. And so the brain thinks that the heart's pumping, um, but the heart's actually shaking like, like set jelly in a bowl. And it's not actually pumping like this. It's shaking like that. But the brain thinks it's actually doing the job. And so because of it, um, the only way you can actually get someone to, to restart their heart is through a shock with a defib. And because of that, I didn't have a defib there. I didn't know this stuff. So when I was in the surf club in the 80s and 90s doing, doing surf lifesaving in Ironman, they weren't down the beach. There were big things that were in the hospital. Um, and I hadn't, I wasn't up to speed with this. So I didn't know I couldn't get him back. So long story short, I, got, I went and investigated um, where to get them. I went and found the best company that sell the best defibs in the world. And I bought one for myself because I didn't want it to happen again. I told the boys in the training group, a hundred or so blokes, I said, listen, you've got 12 weeks 
to go and get checked up, um, get a referral from a doctor, go see a cardiologist and get checked up because I'm not doing this again. I don't want to be pumping one of your chests because you, you, you suffer one of these sudden cardiac arrests as well. So they all went and did that. Now, these are guys that are fit, blokes from 40 to 70 years of age. Mate, out of that group, five guys had to have stents put in. 5% wow. of that. Had to go in and get knocked out and have stents put into that, their arteries. Another 15 guys had to go on medication to, to stop them from potentially having a heart attack or a sudden cardiac arrest. So look, it, it, it just organically um, went from other boys wanting to buy defibs and I'm like, oh, you get them here, I'll get them for you, to then me going, mate, I love doing this. Then I got my first life save through one that I sold to a running group, a guy, 42-year-old guy. Um, life got saved from that defib, and I thought, I'm doing this thing full time. I, I, want, I want some legacy. I want some sort of remembrance of Chucky and, and myself and what I'm doing. Um, yeah, I'll be remembered as the guy that won the cooling out of gold, the first ever professional race the day I go. But I want to be remembered as a guy that turned sudden cardiac arrest, which kills more Aussies than coronavirus, um, car accidents, um, um, cancer put together here in this country. I want to be the guy yeah. that literally snuffed this thing out and and turns this thing around by getting more defibs out there. So, so like, so, so you're I, saying like thirty six thousand people die a year around about so from cardiac arrest yep. each year. Yeah, correct. And so today, a kid under the age of ten will die from an electrical issue with their heart. Um, fit teenagers will die today. Blokes in their 20s that are, uh, are fit, not fit, um, right through to elderly. Um, it doesn't discriminate. You, if you don't have a defib, the pad's on you within three minutes uh, and the machine does the rest. You don't need to know what you're doing. Um, it, you literally, every minute after that first three minutes, you've got 10% less chance of surviving. And unfortunately, the AMBOs try to get to you as quick as they can. Here in Australia, it's about 12 or 13 minutes yeah. for their call-out time to come to you when you're in triple O. So if you do the maths, you can't make it. So the average survival rate on the streets of Australia outside of a hospital is 6% or thereabouts. Um, yeah. Over in Seattle, where we get the defibs from, um, where they are invented, mate, they've got nearly a 70% survival rate on their streets because... Mate, for, for decades and decades, they've been promoting defibs and people have them. So yeah. that's what I want to see here, which will save over 20,000 people every year that would, would, would die right now. Um, every six to eight weeks, one of our defibs saves someone's life right now. The last one was a, a gentleman um, up in Queensland that was rowing in a four-man um, skull. He, he died and got brought back by one of us. And the one prior to that this year was on the golf course down the road from my place where the guy dropped on the green on the 15th hole and got brought back by one of our defibs. So look, it's, it's working. It's rewarding. Um, I still get calls every month from someone that wants a defib because someone died in their family or in a business or at a sporting club. Um, so look, it's a long way to, to, to we get to those numbers of Seattle, but, but like you say, Boothy, it, um, you know, I'm doing the thing I love the most and because of it, I'm doing a good job of it, you know? So, yeah, and, and you're you doing it if it wasn't for Chucky. Yeah. And it comes down for uh, the, the passion and thing and like you would have probably wish you had this, had this knowledge and you're trying to make sure that, you, that this doesn't happen to other people. I know when my father had an issue in 2018, I was training for Molokai and 
he had ended up having open heart surgery. You know, I constantly told him over like the three years prior to that, he'd been walking, like he were in Tokyo and he was walking um, like just up a small slight hill to our apartment. He had to stop three times. We're in Waikiki two years prior to that. He couldn't mm-hmm. like walk that distance. So we were constantly on him. Like he was sort of part of that generation that just like, nah, I'm, I'm invincible. I'm one of that, like that boomer generation that thought of, like, oh, we don't go to the doctors. It's not cool. And we sort of like, I was, I was sad obviously at the time because obviously he was, what he was going through and I felt, somewhat sorry for him but I was also angry at him because he never listened and if there's anything yeah. from this sort of little conversation that we're having now that we can do is that I get people to go out there get your hearts checked um if you want to get a, a defib I know I bought I bought two off you I've got one here in my home and one in my parents home now so hopefully if anything happens you've sold, mate, you've sold a lot more than that you've sold yeah. a lot more than that because you've just you've tagged in sub clubs and and, and kayak places and the like, and, and they've gone and bought off, off you putting posts up about it. So, um, mate, you've been touched by it as well. And, you know, it's a, it, you know, I feel like it's, um, it's an important thing that I need to do every day. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, the coronavirus has slowed down my ability to be able to get more out there. Um, it's slowed down the, the impact that I was having, but it, it hasn't slowed down my intensity to want to, make change and do something good and mate um you know yeah you you mate you've, you've done a hell of a job you've been a, a great advocate for me to 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 reach out to your community and 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 your database of a lot of people to um to spread that word and there's a lot of guys like you that have done that for me in that in the ocean sports scene which is fantastic and um but it's just a start like i told the i told the dfib company over in uh, washington um that but I'd give a decade to this and I popped my head up at the back end of that. And, and, and I said that, um, you know, you wouldn't want to bet against me to not have made a massive change here in this country because um, I'll do everything I can to, to make it, make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that comes down to, yeah, just what you, you are, you're trying to make a difference. You are trying to help people. And that's something that I, I see from talking to a lot of people on my podcast is it just like they want to, generally help people. They want to help their community. They want to help their families. They want to help their friends. And if anybody does want to get a DFib, how do they get in contact with you? Well, maybe they can contact you if they've got access to you directly through, through you and you'll, you'll pass it on. But yeah. um, if you go to heart, which is you know, heart um, 180, which is 180, so heart180.com.au, then all the information's there. You can send out a, an email to me and I'll come back and fill you in on, what DFib makes sense for you, for what situation, um, give you a better deal, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, for a couple of grand, literally these things talk you through everything. They tell you how to do CPR. The one that I recommend the most actually coaches you through the pads on the, on the patient and tells you in verbal real time whether you're pushing deep enough, quick enough, too quick, and coaches you on every compression. So you don't have to know what you're doing. The last yeah. save that we had, the girl that saved the guy, um, she'd never done a first aid course. She'd done our online 15 minute course that we give you as part of the deal. And that got her through and got this guy back alive again, which is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah I think it's incredible work that you're doing. And I think it's really, um, yeah, really important stuff. So lastly, um, what I want to talk about is just like ocean paddling in general. Um, the community around it and why you're still involved. I know you've run a, a training group for 18 years now on the ocean skis um, and you're still involved. You come over to the doctor like in your spare time essentially to, to commentate at the end. It's just it's like you get everyone revved up at presentations. Like you actually do the training groups with Dino sometimes and your own 
um, when you're traveling on trips. Um, what, what makes you want to do that? Do you, do you love the people? Do you love the paddling? Like, what, what is it about those things? I know I've come on a few of those. We have a great time. We talk, we talk a lot yeah. of shit between each, each other. But yeah, what, is it, what is it for you? Fun. Yeah, yeah, it's all good fun. It's just fun. So good. So good. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're, it's, they're my people. You know, it's sort of, you come from Ironman and, and being an elite athlete and all the rest of it. But like you said, it's what, like Dino and I put on the first ever ocean paddling races together. We started that. We started it back before ocean paddling began. We were doing those races on spec skis for people. We, yeah. we put on races from Manly to Palm Beach, around North Head, the Harbour Bridge. They were all Dino and I, Dean Garter and I together that did that. And then Dino brought in the first ocean ski and I've been taking training groups for, on plastic kikes that, that I got general public to do to get fit for six or six or so years. And Dino said, hey, Leachy, check this thing out. And it was an ocean ski that, that he brought in from South Africa. And that was my first reckoning of that craft so you know i was there at the very beginning of the birth of that side of the sport here in the country and and then my guys started filtering into wanting we put people into those skis as they wanted to get better so these are business guys middle-aged never been in a surf club never been great athletes but they they just gravitated to a sport where all of a sudden then these races popped up and the guy that was the current world champion was on the start line, like you said, with Freddie Bloggs, who's a 42-year-old business guy that's been on a ski for, for nine months and is doing this 10K race from the Harbour Bridge to Manly. And he's sitting there with a guy who's a world champion. So it was just unique. So I, I loved all that. Mate. But, you know, for me, it goes way back. So in 1981 or 82, when I first sat on that surf ski, and I remember paddling from Manly to Shelley Beach, which is 800 metres. And the feeling I got just paddling out through the break and over to another destination. And then, then we went a bit further and a bit further. The feeling of freedom on the water, feeling like you, you had your own transport where you could go somewhere where someone else couldn't. And, you know, it wasn't a boat, but you went and did that yourself and it was fitness. It was something I've never lost, that feeling. And... And so I sort of, when, when the Ironman sport finished, I didn't want to go in the pool and swim anymore. You know, yeah. running got taken away from me from a lot of back problems. So that was taken away. But the ski paddling was something, the ocean paddling was something that I held on to. And I still love it to this day. So when you say, what is it about it? It's everything, mate. It's the fact I can go away with Dino, who I've known since the early 80s, um, on a trip and we take people that are just, busting to go and learn about how to paddle downwind and do these paddles every day. And then you jump in and come along for your guest appearances. And we go to places like Hamilton Island and Hawaii with these people. And they're just, they're frothing at just how good it is. Just makes yeah. you feel happy. And, um, you know, I've met like, you know, like we, I did this one class. It was, it's funny. I've got a photo of it. Oscar Chalupski was in town and Oscar and I have got a background of, Mate, we've known each other 30 years and we have put shit on each other forever, right? Oscar yeah. and I raced against each other like you wouldn't believe. I remember inviting Oscar down to a class at Balmoral Beach a few years ago. And I invited Dino to come in with his squad. And, mate, we had a training session where 100 people turned up to do a class for an hour with the three of us there paddling. And, mate, none of these people have been in surf clubs. None of them knew each other before they started ocean paddling. And these people all were friends with each other now. And I just thought, this is the best 
the best environment ever. So I'll, I'll never leave that part of what we do. Like it's just, it's nearly like that link back to surf club a bit, to that bit of Ironman that I used to do. But but it's it's community based, it's fitness based, it's friendship based. I remember I, I went to, unfortunately went to a funeral a couple of years ago to one of our paddlers, right? And there were a hundred people in this church and then at the function after it. And of the hundred people there, more than 50 were paddlers that yeah. this person had made friends from in the last 10 years that he counted as more friends than people prior to that. And that summed up, you know, our sport and what we're about really did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it is it is an incredible sport that we're all a part of. And it's so cool that like you have yourself and Oscar and Dean sort of still sharing your love and passion for the sport, doing the camps. And I think it's all about, I, I've noticed even for myself with the training stuff that I do or coming on the camps with you guys. And you're just like teaching people the simple stuff and they would never even know it otherwise, but they just love coming, talking stories and just traveling around and doing these paddles because it is such an incredible feeling to just be out there in the elements by yourself and whatever craft you're paddling. Like, I don't think it really matters, especially for me, it's just different perspective, different environments, but it's all like the same type of people. And that's something that makes our sport so incredible. You know, they, they particularly like when um, you turn up to the last one in WA last year and you, you had the hide to put shit on me in front of <laughs> yeah. him. They well, I drive the, the Mandarin back there. They went over the moon. They kept, going, they kept going, you can come and run Leachy's spot whenever you want, Boothy. You know, I was oh like, yeah, no God. problem. I thought this little shit, this little shit's <laughs> coming in and he's giving it to me. Yeah, very yeah. good. But yeah. it's been awesome talking with you today, mate. We could probably talk for another couple of hours, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, I really loved your insights into, obviously, into the Ironman, but also into the way that you approach things, your mental strength and obviously chasing your passions. I, and I think that's really cool for the listeners out there to really follow and if you want to find out more about Guy he's all over Facebook he's got GuyLeach.com he's Heart 180s he's sort of everywhere so um, mm -hmm. yeah if you want to find him anywhere you can find him just uh, before you go Boothy one last little bit on just coronavirus and people sort of just you know getting the best out of and trying to trying to just get through this a little tip that um, just as a as, as a parting thing I, I just remembered it I, I literally come off the back of sport where I would rate every week, I'd rate out of 10 my performance levels in training. And I'd, I'd be brutally honest with myself. Um, and, and I used to give the logbook with the rating out of 10 to my coaches at the time. And they'd, they'd give me a rating out of 10 back, right? Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a real way of me just understanding, not just how I thought I was going, but just getting some, some feedback back, which a lot of the time their score was less than what I gave. And they told me why. I took that into life in general um, after sport um, and I broke up areas of my life. I broke up finances and um, my health, my, my fitness, you know, my, my relationships with my family and all these different areas. There's about seven or eight different areas and you can pick whichever ones you want. And once a month, I would rate each area out of 10. You know, happiness was one of them, right? Yeah. And, and do a score out of 70 or 80 or whatever it is and, and give myself some feedback and go, you know what, I'm not going as good in this area at the moment as what I should be. And then come up with three things that I was going to do that month to improve that area, you know? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like we, you know, like if you're into golf, you go to a golf coach to improve your golf swing, like I do. Or if you're an athlete, you'll go and get, get feedback. But no one does it across life. And I think in this time that we're in right now where you're vulnerable 
and you're hurting and all those things I was talking about, what are you actually saying to yourself right now? And what internally are you, are you thinking? Um, it's a great way of just, you know, giving yourself a scorecard, being aware of where you're at across all areas and just trying to improve yourself by being, um, being real and being brutally honest about it and coming out of this feeling a bit better about everything because there's tough, it's tough times for some people and this could help people get through it all. Yeah. It is, it is interesting you're talking about that because I did do a podcast with a, a company called iYarn, which is essentially that same sort of pie graph concept. Um, it's run by Lucky right. Cook um, and he's, he's actually doing that. So basically what he does, he sets up um, like a pie chart for myself and my, and my athletes that I'm, I'm coaching and we sort mm-hmm. of rate each week what, what, where they're at with like happiness or whether it's like your sprint training or your distance training or your family health or any types of those things. And it is a rating out of 10, exactly how you're talking about. So it's quite interesting. There's two people saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, good. And you get to actually see, and then if, if, you, if your rating goes down that week, you can actually see like the difference between like last week and this week. And you go, well, what happened this week that didn't happen last week? And it might be Corona or it might be lost my job or it might be, oh, it went up because I feel stronger in my, in my training so it, it is quite cool to see you were rating yourself out of ten back in that back in the day, as you like, as I like to call it. But well, and now what's, what's this guy's name thing. again? What's this uh, guy's name again? Lucky Cook. Let, you called, let him know he's a, he's a very wise man, mate. He's a very, he's wise, a very man. wise man. So it's called yeah. iYarn. So check it out. There's uh, it's yeah. an online um, website and app, and yeah, he's doing great stuff with that. And he's just he's trying to help that sort of mental um, well-being and sort of. Really, because like especially within men, I think it's it's not really spoken about as much. Like when we're when we're we're sort of like we grow up with that culture, like oh we're hard, we got to like be strong, we got to be all that sort of stuff. But it, it's it's very rare that we actually talk about our feelings or talk about where we're at with our lives, and that sort of gives you that exposure to sort of do it almost anonymously. But I, I sort of oversee some of these things with my athletes, and, and I've only just started it, but it is really cool to see the different developments in in the athletes, and it, it really does help them especially in this time when I've got athletes through Europe and America and all these different yeah. places where they are really struggling with like having totally. to stay home all the time. They can't go on the water anymore. And these restrictions keep like, especially in Spain at the moment, like I know I was speaking to one of my athletes, James Van Duren, and he's been locked mm. up for three weeks and now they've extended it for another month. And it's just like, yeah. he's just going crazy. So yeah. yeah. I think with all that is you can't make improvements in what you do unless you have awareness. And unless yeah. you're willing to go, you know what, let's just have a look at myself and what I'm doing and be, be honest enough about, you know, I could be better. There's no such thing as 10 out of 10 in anything you do. It's just, no. you can't get 10 exist. out of 10. You know, when you hear athletes saying, I'll put in 110% performance, well, there is no such thing as that or even 100%. Like, you're always striving to be better and you're always trying to improve. And the thing is, not about sports so much here, but, but literally the same concept of what you do in sport to be better at it is something we should do across life in general. And we're not, none of us are perfect. None of us have it all worked out. And unless you have an awareness in those areas to go, you know what, I'm going to try to be better in that area. Well, you don't get better. And the majority of human beings on this earth are are habit-based, but the habit-based stuff that they do is the wrong stuff. And they keep going, why am I ending up back here the whole time? Well, it's because they're actually not looking into what they're doing and the habits they've created. Then they're the wrong habits. So, yeah. you know, it's, you've got to start somewhere and there's that awareness piece. And, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, but it's something that I think that um, has helped me and, and, it, um, and we can all get better at what we're doing.
Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just like there's so many things we can be doing. And I think that the idea behind this podcast and having these conversations is trying to help people through this, this weird time that we're all going through. It's real big contraction, I guess, to our lives and the things that we're doing. So hopefully this has been motivating. I've been getting so many nice comments from people saying like, Oh, it's so good to hear your podcast. And they're actually like learning different things and learning how other people are coping in this time. So it's really cool to hear from you. Right? Did you have anything else to add or, or should we, should we end no, it there? I'm just, I'm just still disappointed. You brought, you brought up Joshy Blair again as your number one. I mean, <laughs> oh, mate, I just want um, to just grab the knife yeah. in a little bit, you know, uh, I'm disappointed and, um, Right. Well, uh, but we'll work through it. And uh, after I'll, cry, I'll have a cry tonight on the pillow and I'll wake up yeah. tomorrow and I'll be fine. Right. Yeah. Well, eventually, eventually you, you might be my idol, mate. But we'll see. We'll see. you got a long way to go. Oh, mate, yeah. I'll do my best. Try yeah. Right. No, but I really appreciate your time. I do Thank look you, up to you and, and I do really appreciate the, the time that you give me. And, and you're always very open to uh, listening really to all my stories and my ideas. So I appreciate it. Um, You've just done to a everybody, good job with your podcast, too. Good job. Thanks, mate. Yeah, just to everybody out there who has been watching the Boothcast, um, thank you so much for the feedback. It's been really cool to hear all your stories and having people text me wanting to come on the show or, or sharing like they're actually inspired by what we're talking about in these conversations. So it has been really fulfilling for me. Um, if you want to look at any of the other um, podcasts that we have been doing, you can go on Spotify, iTunes, or there's anchor.fm forward slash Boothcast. And there's like seven different platforms that it's on. Otherwise, you can go to Michael Booth on the Facebook page and there's, if you click videos, there's a Boothcast section which has all these videos recorded. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your time again, Guy, and thanks to everybody out there who are watching these things. Good on you, Boothy. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, mate. See you later. See ya. Bye.